My name is Kevin Hines. I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. I believed that I had to die, but I lived. Today, I travel the world with my lovely wife, Margaret, sharing stories of people who have triumphed over incredible adversity. Now, we help people be here tomorrow. Welcome to the Hindsights Podcast. What is cracking, Hope Nation? It's your friendly neighborhood, Kevin Hines, and I'm so glad that you've joined us once again today, listening, viewing, watching, subscribing to your favorite Hindsights podcast. Absolutely one of the most mentally stimulating pods around. Welcome. Today's guest, Julia Belt, is an absolute gem, an incredible human being, and a great friend to my lovely wife, Margaret, and I. She's the co-founder and creator of Broglie Box, a mental wellness care package company. Inspired to create Broglie Box after experiencing her own mental health challenges as a young adult and tragically losing her brother to suicide when she was just 24. Both Julia and brother suffered to varying degrees with anxiety, depression, and OCD, yet excelled in school and in their careers. His passing inspired Julia to imagine a new way to deliver support and connection in today's hectic, fast-paced, and often very impersonal world. Dustin Belt, Julia's hilarious and amazing husband, realized that after spending over 20 years in the entertainment business experiencing his own mental health challenges, he wanted to find a way to help others access tools to support their overall well-being. Together, they are paving a beautiful and entrepreneurial path to helping thousands find healing with their mental health and overall well-being. Their message has reached far and wide, and Julia speaks nationally about suicide prevention, her personal story, and she absolutely inspires change on a very deep and compassionate level. It is my honor to welcome Julia Bell to the Hindsights Podcast. Julia, how the heavens are you? Hey, Gav. I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Glad to have you on the Hindsights Podcast. So excited for our audiences to, uh, to, audience to hear your story we have an audience uh, from over 32 different countries, and I'm sure they're very excited to hear all that you have to say. Well, thank so, you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Julia, before we really get into it, let's start from the very beginning. Let's go back uh, and tell us about your upbringing, your experiences growing up. Give us the where, who, why, what, where, when, and how. All right. Well, I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So shout out to any Steelers fans out there. Yeah, I had a great childhood, honestly, growing up, Kevin. I had two loving parents. I had two older brothers. I had, I like to say everything but the white picket fence. And the only reason we didn't have the fence is because no one in my neighborhood had fences. <laughs> um, so yeah, so you can imagine growing up in this great environment, the, the amount of guilt and confusion that happened when I was young and what I like to call this giant giant cloud of sadness rolled in out of nowhere. You know, alarm bells were going off, something's terribly wrong, but I didn't have the language to describe what was happening. Now that's been diagnosed as anxiety and depression, but at the time I just had no idea on how to really describe it. And unfortunately, it wasn't until I was really in college where I was experiencing suicidal ideation and some really some really bad anxiety that I finally went to my college mental health center and was put on a 3-month wait list. But yeah, it wasn't until unfortunately a year after college my brother Justin 
who was 24 at the time, died by suicide. And obviously this, this crisis, I like to say, woke me up to the realization that I was probably on the same path as he was if I didn't get help for myself. And it just crushed my entire family and our community. Our community was shocked that someone like my brother who on the outside, everything seemed normal and fine because going back to where I grew up, we were, you know, everybody was like, oh, the Broglie family, they have it all. They, you know, they're excelling in school and always having a huge smile on our faces, but on the inside, we're really struggling. So that is in a nutshell, um, my upbringing and, and kind of what brought me to the mental health advocacy world. Okay. Very, very good to know. And, and, and I'm so sorry about your brother. And, you know, we've had this conversation before is we've talked about what, what you've gone through and what so many people around the world go through when they lose loved ones to suicide. I personally lost 15 people that I know and care for to suicide. It never gets easier. And you, you, you never quite you never do get over it. It's not something one can get over. It's something you can look to the living and find ways to move forward from, but it's incredibly um, painful and it remains incredibly painful. No, how far, no matter how far along you get in life, I think. And it's, 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 it's very, I, I, I really believe people can't move on from a suicide. That's one of my firm beliefs. Yeah. But you, you know, what's interesting, actually just last night, a friend texted me about their neighbor whose brother died by suicide. And she was asking me, you know, how to support, how should I support her? All of these other questions. And it's amazing that, you know, my brother died in 2014. It's now 2022. And it just literally brought me back to the day after and those feelings, like they just never go away. And I was like, wow, it's kind of amazing that it's been so long and I've come so far in my healing process and, and through my grief, but it's amazing that you can go right back to that feeling because it was so, such a, a visceral and strong reaction to what happened. So yeah, I, I totally agree. Such a pivotal moment in your life and your family's lives. And whenever something occurs again like that, you are brought back to that moment. I can tell you as someone who's lost 15 people, every time I lose someone, and it feels like I'm counting every time, you know, every, every time I lose someone or, or someone I know loses someone to suicide, I'm brought back to all 15 of the deaths and it's just devastating. But you've publicly said that you personally struggle with anxiety and depression most of your life. And you told us that here just a few minutes ago. Can you tell me about, in, in a little more detail, living with those two challenges slash diagnoses and how they affected your family and friends? Yeah. So for so long, I hid it from everyone and hid it from the outside world. Only a very select few knew what was going on because I was deeply embarrassed by what I was going through. I think growing up in a place where mental health was not openly spoken about and just at the time, just feeling like it was a personal weakness, truly, like this was something that I needed to deal with myself. Also, the, combined with the fact that I used a coping mechanism of perfectionism, especially with anxiety to be like, okay, well, I'm just going to dive into the things that I can control, which was school and work and any projects that I was working on because I felt like I had some sort of control versus with my diagnosis of anxiety and depression, I felt so out of control all the time. And so with my community, family, and friends, it's interesting because anyone that I did tell what was going on, they were very supportive. They wanted to help me get help, but it was it just took so long for me to be open about it because I didn't 
I was uneducated thinking that, oh, this is something, I, this is a personal weakness. And I wasn't looking at it like any other physical ailment. You know, if you have a broken arm, you don't, you don't hide the fact that you have a broken arm. You, you go to the doctor and get help. So luckily, you know, since then I've, now I feel like I shout to the rooftops about everything that I'm feeling all the time. Um, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. We, we look at, we look at people who have liver, heart, lung, kidney disease. It's just like that broken arm. When people have those things, when they have cancer, when they have even now AIDS, people show up at the hospital, flowers, cards, compassion, empathy, care, teddy bears, right? And they don't, for one minute, take a step back and, and think, why don't you just snap out of it? Get over it. Yeah. Move on. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. What's wrong with you? It's all in your head. But when people go through brain pain, mental illness, which I, I, I have to say, as I get older and older, I hate the term mental illness. Mental has a negative connotation of a word all by itself. Who wants to be labeled mental? Nobody. Who decided that was okay? Yeah. You know, it's brain pain. Your brain is tangible. If you have brain surgery and they cut open your skull and they are working on your brain, they can feel it. It's real. And your brain can become diseased just like every other organ in the body. And we need to remove that. Not to, People say it's stigma, but that's too light of a word. Stigma, first of all, they don't call prejudice, racism, bigotry, or hatred stigma. They call it prejudice, hatred, bigotry, and racism. We should call it what it is. It's pure discrimination against those with that brain pain. It's looking at people who struggle mentally and saying that they are wrong. And mental illness and addictions are the only two diseases we blame people for when they have absolutely no control of them. What do you think about all that? I truly think it's it's lack of education because and and I think the science is still catching up. Even like, you know, looking at the history of like cancer way back when people thought it was something that was contagious and it was like, you can't speak about it if you have this diagnosis, right? And because there was just so much lack of education. I mean, even when I had my first panic attack, I remember feeling like, oh my gosh, my heart is going to stop. I can't see my, my hearing is fuzzy. I didn't know what was happening because I wasn't educated on, well, those are symptoms of a panic attack. And then I thought, well, this just must be something that I'm going through. I also think that there's a lack of education on the difference between stress and anxiety. Mm. And most people think like, oh, I'm just stressed about work because they don't want to use the term anxiety. When, when my therapist explained to me the difference between stress and anxiety, it honestly really helped me because I was always the person who was saying, I'm always stressed out, especially at work. But for anyone that's listening that doesn't know the difference, stress is usually cause-based. So if there's an event or a test or a, a deadline at work, there's stress around that, right? But then once the event is over, the stress subsides. Anxiety could happen because of something or it could happen randomly. And it doesn't, the symptoms of anxiety don't stop after the event has come to an end. But I truly think that with more education, more people talking openly about how they're actually feeling inside with all of the, you know, the brain pain that people, as you mentioned, if people are just speaking more openly, then hopefully that we will destigmatize these things. We can speak more openly. We can destigmatize and remove the discrimination and get people on, on, on top of their game when it comes to these types of struggles and diseases. Absolutely. Can you express to our hindsight's community 
some of whom may be currently struggling with anxiety and depression or other uh, brain pains, why those diagnoses, particularly anxiety and depression and, and conditions are not weaknesses and how they absolutely do not make you less than. Absolutely. And this honestly took a long time for me to accept too. So if you're in that phase where you have this new diagnosis and you feel like it is a weakness, just know that first of all, it's not. And second of all, you're not alone in feeling that way. I truly believe now coming out of the other side of it, where I'm in such a better place than I was when I first got diagnosed is in reality, I'm so much stronger because my brain has to work 10 times as hard for me to just do the basic functionality of being a human. When you're in this state of depression, it's hard to get out of bed. It's hard to pick up your phone. It's hard to take a shower. It's hard to brush your teeth. It's hard to do basic functions, let alone do all the things we need to do, like work, school, all the things we we actually have to do, let alone just the basic function. So it's definitely not a weakness. It's something that a lot of times I think even like with anxiety, you know, you can sort of learn you learn so much about yourself and you kind of learn it to be, okay, this might be my superpower. Like I am, I feel things so deeply. And I think that my depression has taught me that. And I have the ability to empathize with other people on such a deeper level because I've been there in that pain and that, that emotional pain. It's definitely not a weakness. Step one is to push that idea out the door so that you can get some help because there are so many resources. There are so many ways to feel like yourself again, and don't let yourself get in the way of your recovery. Don't let yourself get in the way of your recovery. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you for that, Julia. I really appreciate that. Let's talk about the tough stuff. You lost your brother to suicide, Justin. I need to ask, how did that experience in a sense, wake you up to the reality that you had to take care of yourself? Well, first it broke me in ways that I didn't even know was possible. And as someone who went through depression and suicidal ideation before even losing my brother, it was like a whole new sadness that I'd never experienced as someone who literally was thinking about wanting it all to end two years prior and then having losing my brother. It's just the worst pain in the world. And I think because it's suicide, there were some comments made that weren't meant to be hurtful, but like someone had asked, someone asked our family, like, well, what do you want us to say whenever people ask how he died? And we're like, we died by suicide. We're not embarrassed about that. Are you insinuating that we should be? And so it just added to this further pain that we were experiencing. Also, there there's this guilt that happens when you lose someone to suicide. Like, I wish I could have done more for that person. And I wish that I would have taken some sort of action to help them in their recovery. And losing someone to other types of illnesses that guilt may or may not be there, but I think it really is strong with when it comes to suicide, not just for my family, but the other families that I've talked to that have lost people to suicide. Did you ever experience that type of guilt, Kevin? All 15 times. Yeah. And, and I, have to be just, really, I have to be really honest, I still experience it. Because I, as a suicide preventionist, as a person who travels the world sharing stories and helping people with suicide prevention and, and, and being a subject matter expert in that field, I still think of everyone that I've lost and I have these moments where I can pinpoint 
sometimes the days, the times, the the opportunities where I could have reached out and I didn't. And when I think about that, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, I check myself when I get that moment. I'm like, they're gone. I can't change the past. It's time to live in the present and honor their memory. Yeah, I mean, my brother and I were 18 months apart. We were super close. But I think back to that time, like those three or four months before he died, where there were moments where he wanted to talk about it. And I just wasn't in the right place to have that type of conversation because I also wasn't extremely well myself. So I just felt like I wasn't there for him enough. And you can't look back because there's nothing that could be done. I just remind myself that this is an illness and his brain was telling him that the world would be better off without him in it. Of course we know. And if you're listening and you're having thoughts of suicide, please know that suicide is 100% preventable. There are so many resources out there to help you feel better. But at the time, my brother was felt like he was backed into this corner and that there were no other options, which of course we know is not the case. Yeah, we can look back all we want, but hindsight is always twenty twenty. You know, it's, it's always That's easier to right. go, I could have done this, I should have done that. But in reality, we, we, we weren't able at the moment to do those things and, and, that, and that we shouldn't blame ourselves for that. That's, that's, that's way too much weight to bear on any human shoulders. Was what happened to you personally with your anxiety and depression and then what happened to your brother and your family, uh, was that what got you into mental advocacy? Yeah. So what happened after my brother died, we started speaking more openly, telling his story. I was like, I'm going to tell your story because you're not here to tell it anymore. And then I started opening up about my own diagnosis and just explaining to people who didn't understand what depression was from my perspective, uh, explaining it. And so what happened was all these people in my community, friends, family, coworkers were telling me as a response to me explaining how I was feeling, telling me I too have felt that way or feel that way, or I know someone that does. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I just had this realization that there are so many people out there struggling and that feel that they're alone and feel that it's a personal weakness. And so I now need to do everything I possibly can to make sure that those people don't feel alone and that no other family has to feel what my family felt when we lost my brother. It's hard. Sometimes it feels very overwhelming as a mental health advocate. I'm sure you feel this way too, where you just want to save everybody. And I feel overwhelmed by this massive problem. I mean, someone in the world dies by suicide every 40 seconds, every 40 seconds. And that just, that statistic alone is what keeps me going because I'm like, these people need our help and they need to know that there are other options. But that's originally how I got into it was just from my immediate community reacting to me sharing my story. Mm. Well, it's amazing what you're doing. And maybe we can't stop that every 40 second death. But what we can do is reach out to people in our communities and travel around the world and share our stories. And what we can do is make an effect, make a change in one person's life and every one of those presentations that you give and you share your story with. And, you know, if you if you do it with one person there, and there's probably a lot more that are greatly affected by your story when you tell it because it's so impactful and so powerful. But if we can make a difference in, in those few lives, that adds up. You know, there's an old Jewish proverb that says, you save one life, you save the world. And, and there's, a, there's a great meaning behind that. And it's translated, it's been translated over every language in history, but um, it's, it started off there and it's, it's very meaningful. Julia, people 
after this happened to you and your family, people came out of the woodwork, family, friends, coworkers, and asked for resources for those loved ones going through mental pain. And you wanted to find a way to package those resources in a way that was easily digestible. And this formed what we now know as Brogley Box. Tell us about it. Yes. So I started thinking, how do we start these conversations about mental health in a way that feels fun? And first of all, everybody likes getting stuff in the mail. As you and I have talked about previously, there's actually- yeah, presents, exactly. But there's actually some some science behind it. I mean, the caring letters is a perfect example of that, where this psychiatrist took a group of past patients and sent, he split the group into two, and the one half of the group got letters in the mail. And he found that suicide rate significantly decreased in that group. So I think there is something about just reaching out and letting someone know that you care about them. But I was like, let's take it a step even further and let's put items that are not only fun to use, but have some sort of meaning and effectiveness behind them when it comes to that person's mental health. And so what we did is we interviewed a ton of mental health professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, and we asked them, what do you recommend for your patients outside of going to therapy? And then I also sat in a bunch of Facebook groups for anxiety support, depression support, and just watched and listened. What are people talking about as things that help them, as tools that help them? And so that's what became what we call now the six pillars of mental wellness. And those are mindfulness, gratitude, relaxation, sleep, nutrition, and fitness. So all of the products and tools stem from one of those six categories. So wait, wait, mindfulness, gratitude, resilience, relaxation, relaxation, nutrition, and fitness and sleep, sleep. Say say, say it again. You say it. Mindfulness, gratitude, relaxation, sleep, nutrition, and fitness. Incredible. Yeah. How are Brogley boxes helping people? What, 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 well, first of all, let's go back to what you said earlier. You said the psychiatrist gave these caring letters out to people from in, in his practice when he would come into the psych wars. That was actually a, a good friend of mine, Dr. Jerry Motto. In the 1970s, in the VA system in San Francisco, he created caring letters with his wife. And they would write these letters to people who were leaving the psych ward and the recidivism in the psych wards dropped from that group, that half of group that got the letters and the suicide attempts and rates dropped from those folks that got the caring letters. And it was, you're right, because people recognized they were cared for and they were valued and their lives mattered. And that's really crucial. And that's why uh, on a larger level, that's why bridge nets, rails and barriers are so important because they show that 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 hub for suicide, that hotspot for suicide, that people care. And what happens is when they put a net or a rail up at a, a, a large scale suicide spot, the suicide rates drop to zero on that location, that physical location. But they drop in the metropolitan counties around that area because of how much you show people that you care. It's a fascinating phenomenon. Julia, you always talk and say that that five in five of us have mental health and we all need to take care of it. How important is this distinction from the regular one in five have a mental illness that we hear so much about? Yeah, it's so true that whether you have a diagnosis of a mental illness or not, we all have mental health. And most people think, oh, well, um, you know, I'm never going to have anything happen in my life, right? Like take it from me as someone who went through a crisis happening to start 
prioritizing and taking care of my mental health. All of us can start building mental resilience every single day because there are going to be moments in your life, you know, whether or not you have a mental illness undiagnosed where you're going to have a tough situation that you have to deal with Mm -hmm. and you're going to need to be mentally resilient. And it's what we're doing every single day to take care of our mental health that helps build up this resilience. So some people call it self-care. Some people call it mental health, you know, use whatever term you want, but it's what are you doing every single day to help build up that muscle? You wouldn't go to the gym for the first time and lift the heaviest weight. Same goes with mental health. You know, you want to, you need to build up to that. Build it up over time, build that resilience and resilience can be learned and it can be taught. And that's really important to, to notate because I believe far too many people in our country today are raising their children on their mobile devices. And the problem with that is that you know, if you have a two-year-old and they're crying, instead of attending to that two-year-old, you just hand them a device and let them wash their minds with something that is so addictive anyway. What you're doing is neglecting the opportunity to teach them to get through that moment of pain. And then they grow up and they have no way to determine that when they're in painful situations in their lifetime, how to overcome them. And so you have to start teaching, we have to start teaching our children how to be resilient in the face of pain so that when they get older and they become suicidal, they can survive that pain. And I think that's very important because I can certainly say that I was somewhat taught resilience growing up, but when I became suicidal, I certainly wasn't taught to talk about the depth of my pain to my family when I was struggling with suicidal ideation. We never had that conversation. And so I think we need to have this conversation with families at the breakfast, lunch, and dinner table. What was the peak in the pit of your day? Have you ever had thoughts or are you having thoughts of killing yourself? Have you made plans to take your life or do you have the means? And maybe we don't start there. Maybe we go, you know, hey, how are you? We're thinking about you. We love you. We care for you. We're worried about you. Let us ask you three important questions that are proven to get the right answers. And we're asking these questions because we care and we want you to tell us the honest to God's truth. Are you thinking of killing yourself? Have you made plans to take your life? Do you have the means? And if those answers are yes, take action to keep that person safe right away. Yeah, I also think that, I mean, growing up, I think if I would have heard other people speaking about their own mental health challenges, it might have been easier for me to admit what was actually what I was actually feeling and be more truthful to the depths of how I was feeling. You know, maybe it's not maybe I wasn't sure, oh, is this a safe place for me to talk about it? But if I hear some of my peers or someone that I look up to, um, some of the grownups talking about it, I think I would be more inclined to, to be honest. And so I agree. I think asking people how they're really feeling, putting it a part of the daily conversation, being more open and honest with each other, because kids, kids see that they see, oh, well, you know, mom and dad are talking about this stuff. So it must be okay for me to talk about it too, whenever I'm going through something. Absolutely. Well said. All right, Julia, we've come to the part in the conversation where we are going to talk about rapid fire questions. I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions. Give us a one to three word answer for most of them. If you, if you can, this is just to kind of wrap up the, the talk we had today. I'm so grateful that we got to have you on and have you share your story and, and, and the value of what you're doing is so important and Brogley boxes are so crucial. Before we get into the rapid fire questions though, where do people find Brogley box and where do they find you as well on social media? Social media for Brogley box. It's at the Brogley box, T H E B R O G L I E B O X. 
And for me personally, it's at jules.b underscore J-U-L-S dot B underscore. Say both of those one more time. At the Burgly Box and at jules.b underscore. Perfect. They'll find you. Okay, good. All right, Julia, what or who do you love most? Dustin. Dustin. <laughs> I knew that was the answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dustin Belt. Okay. What is your favorite food? Italian. Italian. Okay. Where would you like to travel most? And remember, one of three word answers. So you pick three countries. Okay. Well, Bali, we're going to next month. So I'm very excited about that. Greece and a third place, Tokyo. Tokyo. Okay. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? I don't know if you can answer that in three words, but do your best. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's a hard one, Kevin. That's not rapid fire. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, did, I tricked you. Oh man. In five years, I really see myself with children. And so raising a family, um, but also just continuing to run businesses that I love and care about and that are mission-driven and changing lives in the mental health space. Beautiful. Okay, Julia, my final question, and this is really important to our audience because a lot of the Hindsight's audience struggles with suicidal ideation and, and considers it and struggles with their, their brain health. Why, Julia? Why, Julia Belt, is this life worth living? Speaking from someone who has been there and felt like it wasn't to overcoming that massive hurdle, this life is so worth living. When you come out the other side, I'm just filled with gratitude that, you know, I'm here. I, I'm, I found the love of my life. I'm doing something for work that I'm extremely passionate about that I never even thought was possible. I feel like myself again, the majority the majority of time, don't get me wrong. There are still days where I struggle, but persevere despite the struggle. This life is is so worth living. And please remember that you've already survived 100% of your worst days. Yeah, that's everything, I think. That's amazing. Well, Julia, thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on the Hindsight's Podcast. To everyone viewing, listening, watching, subscribing, keep coming back to the Hindsight's Podcast every week on Thursday for another episode, 6 p.m. ET. Uh, come back, join us every week as we share stories from around the world of people who have triumphed over incredible adversity and who want to help other people heal, find hope, and find wellness at the end of the day. Ladies and gentlemen, be well, be kind, compassionate, caring, loving, giving, and forgiving of everyone you come into contact with because you never know what they're going through, what they've been through, and be kind to yourself. You are meant to be here into your natural end. Suicide is never the solution to your problem. It is the problem. Be here tomorrow and every single day after that. Thanks, Julia. Margaret and I love sharing stories of people who have triumphed over incredible adversity. For more content and inspiration, go to kevinhindstory.com or visit us on all social medias at Kevin Hines Story or on youtube.com slash kevinhines.